Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number eight, Women's Suffrage, Letting Half the Country Vote. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it isn't worth knowing. Luke. Well, it's great to be back and it's great to be discussing one of the, I think, most interesting moments in American political history from a sort of conventional public choice standpoint. Uh, in the dry language of political science, uh, we tend to think of people as rational political actors. And as a rational political actor, one never wants to willfully dilute one's own vote. And yet in the enfranchisement of women, we have the country or at least the men who can vote in the country essentially voting to cut their own voting power in half. Uh, there's a lot of social science and history about how that happened, but that's not really what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about how this is part of a story about liberty and specifically the advance of liberty and also the periodic setbacks that it experiences and certainly the experience of uh, women's liberty is one such story. It's not a one-way ratchet of increasing liberty over time. You know, in the, in the 18th century, we have women in New Jersey who are voting. Right. That gets taken away. Um, it, it's a very long slog from, from sort of its nascency in the early days of the abolition movement and yet it takes another 60 years before it becomes a, a matter of constitutional law. Right. With, States do it first but before exactly, the whole country yeah, passes correct, the amendment. And federally. We've talked a lot about how truly revolutionary changes, many of which we've documented in these – these documents sort of signal, uh, seem to break – open the living – the experience of living in the world and it's difficult to understand the world before these events took place for those of us who have lived afterwards. It right. seems almost obvious. Uh, how could some, they have done that? Exactly. And, and how could it have gone on for so long? Uh, why did it happen when it did when it seems like just gravitational force should have taken place? And I think – you know the the liber the political liberation the advent the advance of civil rights for women and how long it took 
persistently strikes me as one of these very curious subjects that however much I can read the history, I can read the social science, I can I explain it with my old academic hat on intellectually and sort of emotionally, it still seems like such an odd fact that it took so long and involved so many people and and went and and went in and out and 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 advanced and retreated, advanced and retreated. It, it really is the case of no one-way ratchet for liberty. What was the world in which Elizabeth Cady Stanton is born, operates, and from which the Seneca Falls Declaration emerges? Right. She's born in the early 19th century in a little town in upstate New York called Johnstown. Uh, it's west of Albany in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, her father is a judge uh, and a congressman. Uh, one, you know, one term, but but he's he's been a successful politician. Uh, what you mentioned uh, earlier that women had voted in the late 18th century in New Jersey, and I, I just want to talk a little bit about that because it's an interesting anomaly. The New Jersey's first post-independence constitution, which was rushed into effect as the British were invading the state, having taken New York, and they marched west did not use the word freeman to describe voters, which was used in many other state constitutions. And women noticed this. Well, OK, it's not freeman. Maybe that also includes us. Now, there was a property qualification which under the, the legal system of the day would eliminate married women because they were held to – their identity was held to be subsumed under that of their – Husbands, but single women, widows who met this property qualification could and did vote in New Jersey for a number of years. And what strike what's striking to me about that is that let's imagine the New Jersey Constitution is is being rushed together at the last minute, and they say the governor shall be a king, hmm. shall be an inherited kingly office. They would have fixed that the next day. They would have said, oh, come on, this is terrible. Get that crap out of here. But this anomaly they sort of lived with for 30 years and then finally they got rid of it. There was a, a, a corrupt election and they were looking for scapegoats and they decided, well, the women and the free blacks are really the problem here in New Jersey so let's take the vote away from them. I mean it was slimy and sordid. But it wasn't this kind of instantaneous negative reaction that they would have had to certain other things. So I think that's that's interesting that it was unusual, it was anomalous, but you know, people kind of scratched their heads and lived with it for a while in this one state. But then it was taken away. And what are women up against? Uh, they are up against this doctrine that I mentioned, uh, the legal name is coverture, that um, a married woman, her identity legally is subsumed under the identity of her husband. I mean she can't be sued, she can't inherit, she can't own property, on and on and on. And uh, this comes from English law. Uh, William Blackstone, whom we've mentioned in an earlier episode, he defines this in his commentaries on the laws of England. This was something that was you know, kind of taken over wholesale into American law. Uh, also readings of the Bible would uh, encourage interpretations where the man is the head of the family. Uh, so this is something uh, women are also up against. So there is a, there is a tremendous social uh, uh, force uh, 
which tends to keep them from voting in countries which allow people to vote. And that's what they're up against uh, in the United States. So as a matter of inherited law, it's, it's easy to see how they wound up in this sort of situation as well as a matter of social position and a lack of economic power, autonomous economic power in most cases coming from that social position. But as a matter of ideology, what, what was the best version of the anti-women's enfranchisement argument? What is the, what is the best sort of – and I don't mean this in the, in the way that it's thrown about in contemporary discussion today. What was the best version of the misogynist position when it came to equal civil and political participatory rights for women? I suppose it would be a subset of the argument of virtual representation, that your interests can be adequately represented by – not necessarily by you but by someone else acting in your behalf. Now, you know, we accept this today with children. Children don't vote. There, there's an age cutoff below which they can't. But this has been applied uh, in the past to women. Uh, it's been applied uh, to whole categories of, of voters uh, under the old unreformed English parliament. Uh, there are all sorts of anomalies where you know, towns which had become quite populous weren't sending any members to parliament. Towns which had lost their population entirely were sending two members to parliament. And people thought, well, that's not so bad because the interests of the, of the pro of populous towns are being represented by other people. Uh, this was the argument that was thrown at the American colonies. You know why? You know why? Quit your yipping. I mean, y your interests are being adequately represented by members of parliament who have your interests at heart. You know, English English parliamentarians who have your interests at heart. Uh, people like Edmund Burke, for instance. Uh, so I think that would be the um, form of the argument defending the status quo. It, it, there's also an element to traditional notions of, of Republican, little r, Republican citizenship that links citizenship to the capacity to bear arms in defense of the state. Starship troopers. There you go. Yeah. And uh, you know, we see it in Harrington, before that in Machiavelli and all the way back to you know, the hoplite armies of ancient Greece. But a great irony is that women's political and economic advancement is often brought about as a result of war, not because of their service in it per se, but because of the roles and social functions that it of necessity op opens up to them, sometimes explicitly in the forms of doing economic labor that previously had been foreclosed to them or carrying out government functions that previously they would have been ineligible for, sometimes as an artifact of, uh, the, of, of existing law. For instance, if you have a war, you'll have more widows, which means you'll have more women who own property in their own right and thus can participate politically as by virtue of property ownership which is also seen as having an interest in the, the state itself. What is that relationship between war and representation when it comes to women? Well, as you said, in times of war, it opens spaces. Uh, the men are off fighting. The women are keeping the home fires burning. Uh, Abigail Adams is actually closer to the firing than her husband John will ever be. Uh, I'm not running down John. He took on a lot of important responsibilities. But Abigail Adams from her home heard the cannon of Bunker Hill and saw the smoke of Bunk Bunker Hill across Boston Harbor. So you know, not only were they uh, keeping uh, homes and farms going and sometimes they were, they were actually right up against uh, the margins of conflict. 
and and doing grisly work that we see in a lot yes, of these cases. Uh, 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 nursing work, mm-hmm. uh, uh, helping uh, wounded soldiers, helping soldiers, helping supply them. Um, the Continental Army always had women of the army, and these were not these were not camp followers. Mm-hmm. These were people women who accompanied the army to, you know, uh, repair the clothing, uh, help prepare the meals, uh, do that do that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, Molly Pitcher, who's famous for having taken over her husband's cannon, mm-hmm. um, allegedly in a uh, Revolutionary War battle, she was such a person. There's also a, a, another element in the American story that integrates women's liberty in a complex and nonlinear but inextricable fashion. There's war on the one hand and then there's abolition on the other. The women's movement, the movement for women's equal status emerges out of but also in some ways in conflict with the movement to abolish slavery. Right. And we see we see this in the life of Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, who – she marries um, – uh, her husband, Henry Stanton, is a prominent abolitionist orator. Uh, the two of them attend a World Abolitionist Council in London shortly after they're married. And there's a big fight at this conclave. Shall the women who are here be able to vote on the various motions that were passing? And uh, it's a great big brawl, you know, and the result is the the women can't. They're, they're shut out of it. But this was the awakening moment for Elizabeth Cady Stanton who was very passionate about abolition you know, as passionate as her husband. She was noted by people to be, you know, very earnest and, and eloquent and so on. And then after this convention, she said to one of her friends, you know, why why can't we have a women's rights convention for ourselves? So that planted the seed in her mind. And then a few years later, she and her husband, uh, they moved to this uh, town in upstate New York, Seneca Falls. And uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton has three boys uh, they're they're eight, six, and four, you know. And her husband is off campaigning. He's campaigning for the Free Soil Party, and you know, uh, spreading the abolitionist gospel on the road. And and Elizabeth is at home with her family, and uh, she has a meeting with some other women friends of hers, and they're complaining about their state and the pressures upon them. And then the husband of one of uh, Stanton's friends says to all the women, why don't you do something about it? And so then they start planning a convention on women's rights that they're intending to hold in Seneca Falls. And they're rushing to get this together because they have visiting with them uh, a a women orator, uh, Lucretia Mott, who is very uh, eloquent on the abolition side. And they want to take advantage of her presence in upstate New York. She lives in Philadelphia, but she's there visiting relatives. So uh, they they rush this meeting together and they hold it in the Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls, which is a breakaway group of Methodists who have left the main body of the church because they are abolitionists. They're opposed to slavery. They also have the biggest uh, church building in town. So they think that's a good thing. And um, the meeting is scheduled and the one, the one little detail I like is when they, when they were uh, assembling for their meeting, uh, no one had thought to bring a key. So uh, one of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's nephews 
climbs through a window and opens the door from the inside. Then the meeting can, uh, can take place. And how does the meeting go down? What's the sort of blow by blow? And, and what might surprise our listeners to know about who attends and who winds up signing uh, the declaration? Well, the most uh, famous person who attended apart from the women's suffrage leaders themselves like Stanton and, and Lucretia Mott is uh, also the only black person we know to have attended. There, there are 12 people we know nothing about. Hmm. But uh, this was Frederick Douglass who at that time was living in Rochester, New York, which is not, not so far away. Uh, he was publishing his own newspaper, his own abolitionist newspaper. But he's also a supporter of women's rights and he attends this meeting. It's a two-day meeting. Uh, he's one of the people who speaks. I mean he's already renowned uh, as an orator and he speaks to the issue which was the most controversial at this convention which was raised by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and it was to give women the right to vote. And it's interesting that this is the most controversial thing. The reason it's controversial is many of the women attending were Quakers and we've come across Quakers in earlier podcasts. And even then and I think more and more as time passed, Quakers saw themselves as outsiders in the general society. And there was a feeling that general society is corrupt. You know, we have to live a pure life. It's sort of the Benedict option, right. you know, the 19th century version of, of Rod Dreher's thing. Uh, we'll only meddle in it from time to time when it's absolutely necessary. So they don't vote. They tend not to vote. They figure politics is just – it's just a rogues game, rascals contending. And so there's, there's resistance to making the right to vote one of their mm. demands. Um, Lucretia Mott tells Stanton, you know, they will make this – the convention ridiculous. Lizzie, they will make the convention ridiculous if you stick this in there. But she insists and I think – you know, one of the reasons she insists is the world she's grown up in at home. Her father's a judge. Her father was in Congress. And also her husband is very political. He's involved in the Free Soil Party, this anti-slavery third party that's getting going. So, you know, she's, she's got politics uh, uh, from her father's side. She's got politics from her husband. She's interested in it herself and she understands the importance of voting. You know, and her argument is if we can't vote, our interests will not be protected. She just does not buy the notion of virtual representation. And she also doesn't buy the Quaker notion of, eh, it's all corrupt anyway, who cares? You know, the best we can do is lobby from the outside. And her position is, no, we have to be in there. We, we have to be in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say. The, the insistence on politics versus hostility to women's voting from a more radical position I think would surprise a lot of people. We've seen a lot of times in, in our previous uh, episodes how liberty is advanced by a combination of high ideals and uh, pragmatic skullduggery. <laughs> right. Um, right. That's not really the case with Elizabeth Cady Stanton though. She's much more of – although she, she makes the case for politics – her own 
political strategizing is not one of smoke-filled rooms or deal-making. It's, it's pretty purist. Um, it, she, she drives a hard bargain on the issue she cares about within the arena of politics. Do you think that has something to do with why it took so long uh, for their goals to be achieved or do you think this is a case where a more insistent form of, of sort of political brokering or political positioning was the most effective strategy out there? Well, it was going to be tough because the, the uh, Seneca Falls Convention is 1848 and the Civil War is going to happen and that's just the vortex into which everything is consumed. By 58, there's open conflict in Kansas and everything. You know, that's people right. are shipping Bible, or, uh, Beecher's Bibles, the, the firearms right. and whatnot. Right. And then the actual war happens and then we have Reconstruction, which is also – guerrilla warfare in the South and lots of political warfare about how this should proceed. And after the, the Civil War, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and some of her uh, friends in the women's movement, they're, they're very frustrated that women's suffrage is taking a back seat to these um, Civil War and race-related issues. And she she makes an unfortunate statement that, you know, why should uh, uh, Patrick and Sambo and Young Tongue, she's generic names for Irishmen, black men and Chinese men, why should they have the vote when women don't have it? And then Frederick Douglass in a very, you know, dignified fashion says, look, if women were being hauled out of their homes and hung from lampposts simply because they were women, then it would be a matter of equal urgency. But that is not the case. You know, the black man in the South is being harassed and murdered, and, and he desperately needs this right to vote now. So he's making an argument for priority based on the news, and it will take uh, it will take many decades before it finally happens. The mass resettlement of the veterans of the Great Army of the Republic, as well as freed slaves, um, in the Western sort of hinterlands of the United States has a lot to do with shifting the population westward and into what we now call the middle Midwest, the sort of middle of the country and on into the mountain west and ultimately to the Pacific coast. It's in these places that women start to get the right to vote first. Right. Wyoming Territory, 1869. Which is – you know, there's a referendum in Kansas in 1867. That fails but the, the founding of the public university there in 1865, it's, it's founded as an integrated university both racially and on matters of sex. So you have, you have in the west this kind of social revolution taking place and a political revolution in the ways in which women are treated. What is the role of the West in all of this? Well, it's frontier and on frontiers, women obviously do at least half the work and often the work that men are doing. You know, just the, the hard labor of, of clearing a farm, making it work. Um, it, you know, it's almost like the, the, the pioneer experiences in, in, in the 17th century where you read of, you know, women who were kidnapped by Indians and then when their captors were asleep, they slit their throats in the night right. and then took the canoes and canoed back to civilization. I mean, you know, amazing sort of blood and thunder stuff. And, 
you know, to, to a lesser degree, that is also happening in the West. So there's, there's maybe practical reasons why equality seems uh, obvious, not, you know, more than doable, but the obvious right thing. This is also a case where we have elites by and large who are the folks you – know, of course, Frederick Douglass is internationally known by the time he signs it. Um, most of the folks who sign the, the Seneca Falls Convention would generally be described as if not the highest end of the social spectrum, pretty well positioned. Um, no, or no, I don't think so. Yes, Frederick Douglass is, is a rock star already. Mm -hmm. uh, Lucretia Mott was known as an orator. Well, what was interesting to me about the hundred people who signed this document, they were people who were living around hmm. – who were living there. They were just ordinary people, people in Seneca Falls, people in nearby towns. As I said, there are 12 of them of whom we know nothing. Right. All we know is that they put their names to this. Uh, most of the signers were women. Over, over 60 of them were women. Over 30 of them were men. Uh, a lot of them were families. You know, a couple would uh, – sorry, a couple would come or, you know, father and daughter, um, aunts and uncles, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but, but they were – uh, they were an, an ordinary group of people and that there's something very impressive to me mm -hmm. about that. We should also note that the the language of the Declaration deliberately mimics the Declaration of Independence. So they are um, they are trying to plug into this existing American statement of independence and also of our ideals. And by doing that, they're saying, well, Yes, but it also includes us. Who then is the King George in this in this account? You and me. Yeah, men. <laughs> you know, yes, it's men. Men have been uh, restricting women. They haven't allowed them to hold property. They don't let them be ministers in churches. They don't let them go to college. You know, there's a long list of indictments. But so I think uh, one reason for quoting the Declaration of Independence is a way to soften that blow. You know, uh, all right, you you guys are King George, but you are Americans, so you do honor this document that we are citing, and you are part of that, and so it won't be such a stretch for you to also endorse this new document that we're writing here in 1848. And and even though the sort of broad reformist movement of the age gets wrapped up in the Civil War. Mm, well, first sort of gets pulled into the Free Soil Party and then into the Republican Party and then into the Civil War. What's the immediate response to Seneca Falls? A number of newspapers commented on it, not, not all of them local. Uh, they were as far away as Philadelphia, uh, Chicago. Uh, there was a split. Uh, you know, a number of them thought this was preposterous. A number of them said right on. Uh, my, my favorite uh, favorable comment was from a newspaper in Herkimer, New York, and it said, a railroad speed to their efforts. <laughs> so that would be like saying today, a mission to Mars speed to your efforts. I mean, they were taking the, the latest modern technology and hoping that it would race this um, cause through to its successful conclusion. And yet we have from 1848 to 1920. So. Well, but I have to tell the the most amazing story about this. Elizabeth Cady Stanton dies before women get the right to vote. But one of the signers of the Seneca Falls Declaration, a woman named Rhoda Palmer, and she grew up, she lived her entire life in Geneva, New York. She only ever lived in two houses there. 
and she came to Seneca Falls with her father. They drove over in a little gig. They attended the convention. She signed the document. They drove home. Years later, she remembered, well, the only thing that happened was our carriage broke down and we had to spend, you know, we had to spend a night on the road. But New York State gave women the right to vote before the amendment is passed in 1917. So in 1918, Rhoda Palmer, 102 years old, is driven to the polls to vote. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American idea to get your copy today.